The next witness is Greg Hill. Great. Thank you for joining us and for your patience today. Could you uh, state and spell your name for the record, please? Greg Hill, uh, G-R-E-G-H-I-L-L. Do you promise to tell the truth today? I do. Can you tell us a bit about uh, your career, your profession, and uh, explain what free to fly is? Sure. Well, thanks for uh, having me on. It's an honor to be here with so many other courageous Canadians that have uh, stepped up over the past couple of years. Uh, I started my flying career in the military. I spent 20 years in the regular force and then uh, roughly another 12 years in the reserves. Uh, that enabled me to see all sorts of parts of the world, oftentimes not at, uh, at its best, but, uh, but I did get deployed all, all over the place, including several tours uh, to Afghanistan. And then I started with the airlines back in 2006, uh, and I've been there ever since. Aside from uh, a year where I did not work due to the vaccine mandate, I assumed that would probably be the end of my uh, my career. But uh, since the uh, the mandate was suspended last June, I've been back working since uh, roughly September of last year. So free to fly. Uh, I won't get into too much detail with it, but as we saw the government start to talk make noise about a vaccine mandate, I assumed that it would probably be coming for aviation, first of all, just given the nature of uh, our travels about the world and otherwise. So it started with a handful of pilots and then morphed into, now it's over 40,000 aviation professionals and passengers. Many of those are disaffected passengers that were unable to travel during the period of that uh, vaccine passport. And so we continue our work advocating for both uh, the freedom to fly, of course, but also the freedoms uh, more broadly of every Canadian coast to coast, as well as for safety within the aviation sector. Can you tell us a bit about uh, the health standards and the safety obsession of airlines before COVID? Sure. Um, aviation went through a difficult period, uh, I would say back in the 70s primarily, I won't get into all the nitty-gritty of it. Uh, those of you who are familiar with, with aviation will, uh, will know some of the details. But went through a spate of crashes and otherwise, a lot of that coming out of just the way that we were operating. People in multi-crew aircraft acting like single pilot, um, <clears throat> single pilot commanders ignoring others uh, in the flight deck. Uh, things like attention tunneling, excessive, excessive professional courtesy, something we talk about where there's so much deference to those in authority being the captain, uh, typically that people won't even speak up when, when things are going sideways, uh, overconfidence, et cetera. So the sector completely changed the way uh, they did business through things like uh, crew resource management, uh, communication, uh, enabling an environment where you could ask questions, where you could speak up when things were going sideways. So that evolved and expanded into things like what we call SMS, which is safety management system. And that's become really a, a gold standard globally. Uh, and, and in their own words, uh, it ensures the effectiveness of safety risk control. So it, it, it's an environment where you can identify hazard, you can report on that. It, it encourages input and response from those in positions uh, of authority. So even here in this country, uh, we've got statements from some of our major airlines, uh, one of which uh, states for over 25 years, our culture has put safety at the forefront of every decision we make, and we're proud to continue that legacy. Another airline, safety first, always, in partnership with, its, uh, with our employees, 
will uh, conduct business in a manner that ensures the health and safety of employees, customers, the general public, on and on, meeting our obligations under all applicable regulations. So that's the industry as a whole. And then when we bring it down kind of to the grassroots, as far as uh, pilots go, there is, uh, there's numerous things that have, have been in place really for decades. So when it comes to things like uh, medicine, uh, as pilots, when we fly in a crew environment, just to give you uh, maybe some context, we're not even supposed to consume the same meal in flight for fear of if, if the fish is bad, uh, ending up uh, incapacitated in flight or even over-the-counter medication when it comes to things like cold and flu and otherwise. We're supposed to check with, uh, with a doctor before we do that. Or on Transport Canada's website, there had been a statement that's been there for a very long time that said medical trials are not compatible with aviation medical certification. Um, so that's been there. And, and as far as our health on, a, on an ongoing basis, for decades, it has been uh, in the Canadian Air Regulations, Section 404, that pilots are required annually to have a medical, or if you're over a certain age, it used to be 40, now it's 60 every six months, an in-person medical, which includes uh, an ECG. So that's a little bit of context. Obviously, it's not the full picture, but that gives you a baseline of, of where, uh, where I would see we used to be. So what happened during the pandemic? Let's start with the medicals. How did the frequency of those medicals uh, change? Well, as far as the medicals go, in, when, when COVID hit, uh, initially, you had people that were, were starting to expire on their medicals. So initially, it was that they would extend the, the expiry date, um, which you know, it's the cliche that we all say, well, you know, it made sense at the time. It was a confusing environment. We weren't too sure what to do. So that was the way it went for much of 2020. And then as we moved into 2021, they brought about uh, telemedicals, essentially. And so they exempted uh, pilots from that section of the Canadian Air Regulations, enabling them to go to do two telemedicals in a row. So that means that you've got an ability for people to go 36 months <clears throat> without doing uh, an in-person medical at all, uh, including an ECG or otherwise. So there's been a fair bit of noise made about, about some of the things that are happening in the States with ECGs and the parameters widening. But I like to point out, well, I don't like to point out, but I do point out that here in Canada, unfortunately, it's uh, during this, this COVID era, we pushed it, uh, we pushed it uh, to, to a worse scenario where we're not even required. And this was in, in, during a season when much of the nation had gone back to at least some semblance of normalcy where you could go and sit and watch a Leafs game with 20,000 people, which I think is fantastic, but you weren't able to go and sit in a, uh, a clean and quiet uh, airline office with your doctor and, and make sure you're healthy. Um, so I don't want to go on and on about that point. That's that's certainly one uh, piece of it, and, and I can speak to where we're at with that now, which I think is important as well. But during uh, the, the actual, uh, I would call it during the mandate era, we saw all sorts of things happen that were, were of great concern, um, and we tried to approach that uh, as, as the... Um, the calm professionals that, that we like to be as pilots where, where we mainly are looking to mitigate risk and get people from point A to point B in, uh, in a safe and, uh, and, and calm manner. How were your concerns uh, received by Transport Canada and unions and airline management? Right. Well, stepping back to what I just said, um, we tried to, to approach this as professionally 
as possible. So we we wanted to ask good questions. We wanted to think ahead. We wanted to seek to mitigate risk. So we partnered at one point with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance because uh, I know as much about uh, medicine and vaccines as, as some of these scientists would know about flying uh, an instrument approach in an airline. And, and so we sought to bring in their expertise. So they very kindly prepared a document. We sat down and talked to them and they said very clearly of any profession in the country, flight crew are probably the ones we're concerned about the most because you fly in a unique environment, you sit for long, long periods of time, which elevates some of these uh, vascular and cardio uh, type of risks. So we put together a document uh, so that we weren't just sitting down and talking to our managers or, or otherwise from, from what we gleaned ourselves on the internet, although I think there's plenty of good information out there. But we, we presented this document to a couple of the largest uh, pilot unions in the nation, a couple of the largest airlines in the nation, and here we are a couple of years later and I still haven't heard anything uh, back as far as this goes. So it, it really, um, and I'm sure you've heard this uh, repeatedly as you've, you've done all sorts of uh, conversations along these lines, there wasn't a willingness um, to listen. But the concern within the aviation uh, env environment is, is one of the analogies I like to use is we try to approach it the same way that we fly airplanes. So we queried, for instance, Transport Canada. Uh, we started uh, talking about what happens if I lose my license? Because if a pilot loses his, his ability to fly with his medical, it's essentially the end of his career. So myself and a couple others started asking what happens? Uh, and the, the answer to make a long story short was, well, you're, you're at risk of COVID far more than you are from these vaccines, uh, to which I said, well, based on what long-term studies, because it's been very clear, and this is from the manufacturer's own FDA briefings, that there was no proof of uh, any any help as far as uh, you know uh, transmission, uh, that the long-term studies had not been done. Um, and then people started asking about this, this line that I mentioned about not participating in medical trials. And so when we asked these questions, which was during the week of uh, the 13th of July of 21, that, that statement had been on um, the internet for years and years. The very next week, if you use the, the Wayback Machine, uh, it, it simply disappeared. There was a ton of activity on that particular page. And that inconvenient truth, uh, to some a little Al Gore, was simply removed, um, which is greatly concerning. Uh, we have never in aviation simply ignored uh, difficult circumstance. And so this was what I, I pushed back with, with my managers and said, if I was flying an airplane and I was running a little bit late, and I ran up to the aircraft and I said, listen, the risk of a catastrophic engine failure on takeoff is sub, sub, sub 1% because it is. So I'm not going to do a walk around. I'm not going to check the maintenance records. I'm not going to program the aircraft or brief. I've done this a bunch of times. Um, I'm quite confident that we're safe. And I just took off. It would very quickly be the end of my career. And yet those within the aviation community, and it's not just my managers, I pushed this all the way back up to Transport Canada because these were the questions that were being asked. The statement was basically, it's safe and effective, just get it. And the option was you either get it uh, or you lose your job, similar to many, uh, to many others. And so stepping back to what I was talking about in the 70s where we were crashing airplanes planes for operating in ways that were uh, reckless and, and not really investigating, this was same, some of the same sort of concerns. There's, um, there was this, there's sort of a radical statement in aviation that if, if you start querying the guy you're flying with and things are you know, starting to go sideways, it just seems like he's not listening. 
you say, this is stupid to try and get their attention. And this was really what we were trying to do. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, it just, it, it wasn't listened to. And, and the part that I think was particularly frustrating for many of my colleagues as well, is that throughout this era, the airlines had put in writing, testing is an excellent option to keep you and your colleagues safe. Uh, and, and these, some of our, our guys and gals were flying back and forth to China and other places, picking up PPE and otherwise, and they were told, along with the traveling public, and I do think it's true, the risk of transmission is exceedingly low. It's very rare to, to contract COVID while flying. Keep flying. There's, there's, no, there's no need to quarantine or otherwise. And then when the mandate came out, suddenly we were such a dire risk to our colleagues that when we had to turn back in our, our passes and our iPads and otherwise when we were put out of work and expecting to be terminated, we weren't even allowed to walk in the building to truck them off. We had to leave them either curbside or mail them in. Um, so there's a, there's a level of hypocrisy as well as just a complete decoupling of common sense from uh, from policy. I understand that you've had a number of calls with pilots who are likely vaccine injured. Can you tell us a bit about those calls? Right. So uh, you know, I guess this is is where we we are at this point. Uh, we're, we're what I would call the post mandate era. Some of us uh, are back to work. Uh, there's others who, who did not get their job back, but as you as you mentioned, uh, I, I personally firsthand spent hours on the phone with uh, with vaccine injured uh, Canadian airline pilots. Just based on my role, uh, they feel comfortable calling and, and talking to me. They don't feel so comfortable raising their hand um, in, in other means because again, that that medical is is the tenuous thread that keeps you uh, in an airplane. So some of these are, are more minor on the spectrum. Again, I'm not a doctor to, to speak to, to where they fall on the spectrum exactly, but things from, from issues with vision to hearing, um, you know, to feelings of paralysis in different parts of your body to what seem to be symptomatic of something like myocarditis, chest pains, uh, and otherwise. Uh, and so we, we've tried to be very vocal with this, but we've tried to do it in a way that's, uh, that's collaborative as well. And I brokered a coalition with a number of other groups similar to Free to Fly in, in the US, Australia, the UK, Germany, Switzerland, uh, various spots in, in Europe. And we put our signatures on a, on a letter we sent to Transport Canada. And, and we just said, listen, we want the safety uh, of the traveling public. We want to collaborate with you. So we asked questions as far as what was done as, to determine the safety and efficacy of these prior to rolling out the mandate. Are you tracking things like uh, adverse reactions amongst crew. Are you tracking how many planes were flying around single pilot versus multi-crew? We sent that letter. We waited maybe a month, I think a month and a half. We sent a follow-up. It was over, it was, it, it was over three months before Mr. Algabra finally responded with a collection of uh, speaking points, essentially saying Health Canada's approved these vaccines are safe and effective. And that was really uh, as far as it went. So concerning for sure, because the you know the role of some of an organization like Transport Canada is to ensure the safety of the traveling public, and uh, and and it does not appear that uh, that this is where we're at. So when we talk about things like vaccine injury amongst uh, flight crew, you know, and this this is uh, pilots as well as uh, as flight attendants, and you you can go online and look this up in something called the CADORS, the, the uh, Civil Aviation Daily Occurrence uh, Reporting System. So it's not me that's, that's picking it off the internet or otherwise. You can go and read the reports yourself. 
and piloting capacitation has been an issue for years and years, but of course we're concerned about where we're going with, uh, with these, these jabs. So I like to be solution focused and, and then the concern here, stepping back to what you'd asked earlier, is what can we do about this? What we can do and the only backstop is properly screening pilots uh, before before they go flying or as part of their annual medicals. And I think this should go further as far as things like D-dimer tests or even uh, cardiac MRIs, which, which may be a pipe dream here in Canada. But instead, where we're at now is Transport Canada just recently, uh, March the 1st, unbelievably, um, and we're the only nation I know of and I've checked globally that's doing this, has now allowed telemedicals to continue until 2025. So a, so a pilot can go Again, up to 36 months, the third medical they do have to do in person uh, without doing an in-person medical. Um, and sadly, two weeks after they did that, the Transportation Safety Board, which is, which, which is an independent organization, put out uh, an accident report that happened in late 2021. Uh, a gentleman flying a private uh, aircraft sadly crashed in Alberta and it was determined that he'd had a heart attack uh, as part of that crash. Now, the, the interesting uh, and tragic uh, part of all of that is the fact that he was an airline transport pilot rated uh, pilot. He was, he was a commercial pilot, and he had attested his health earlier in the year. And uh, this is the thing, and the, the justification now is flexibility. But we have never, in aviation, set flexibility on top of safety. We, we have preached against it for years and years. You're told not to, to do things like get home-itis, which is a word for it's the last leg of being on the road for four days and you start rushing and forgetting things. Safety always uh, is, is, is paramount. And yet here we are uh, permitting this telemedical uh, business to continue. So I feel it's important to raise, uh, not to keep hammering the same point over and over again, but because in order to be solution-focused, I think we've got to figure out, well, what do we do about it? We've got to screen people properly, and yet here we are with this past three years, and, and you and I have just discussed uh, a trajectory of sorts where we started with one thing, and you would have thought by 2023, when we're at least ostensibly trying to get uh, society back to some sense of normalcy, we're continuing with policies that are antithetical to everything we stand for in aviation. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself, what is really uh, going on at the policy uh, level with a lot of this. Thank you. That completes my questions, and I'll uh, see if the commissioners have any questions for you. There is one. Well, thank you very much for your very interesting uh, testimony. I was wondering about the uh, testing of the pilot. Uh, I think it makes sense that you would want to do in-person medical exam. What's the, what would be the consequences for pilot that undergoing such exam would have condition that would prevent them from further uh, working as, as pilot because of disability that would disqualify them? What would be the consequence for, for them and for the, um, I guess, the vaccine mandate that actually put them in that situation? Well, thanks for the question. The, the, the issue with all of this, and it's not unique to aviation, of course, is, is trying to prove causality. Um, and unless you baselined your health before taking the jab, which I know a few people have done, uh, 
it's difficult uh, to prove that causality. Now, I know that sounds uh, a little bit... Um, I mean, we're all seeing mass, massive amounts of things happening that we have not, not seen in the past. So it's very difficult with a straight face to try and claim that this is just a normal circumstance. The, the unique thing, again, like I said, with a pilot is that... And pre, uh, pre-COVID, typically, if you'd gone into your annual medical and said... Uh, you know, I, Doc, I, I, I'm getting chest pains um, once or twice uh, a week during the evenings. You'd be grounded pretty quickly while they at least investigated that. But folks that I've, I've talked to have raised some concerns, and they've really had to push to go and do things like stress tests to try and... And when you've got a pilot that's essentially seeking to ground himself, uh, you're living in, a, in an upside-down world, at least as far as aviation goes, because it's very difficult to keep men and women who are passionate about flying out of an airplane, and particularly when their ability to pay their salary, to pay their mortgage or, or otherwise is attached to it. So I'm not sure if that, that answers your question, but, but the long and short of it is, um, and, and if you go and, and read something like the Civil Aviation Medical Examiner's Handbook, there's guidance there for the Transport Canada doctors. And it says quite clearly that it's difficult sometimes to get pilots to be honest about your health. It's it's quite kind of laughable to read it because it it says very clearly you're the you're the last line of defense here with making sure these men and women are safe getting in an airplane uh, because they're oftentimes not going to be super honest because they want to keep uh, keep flying which which again is an argument for ensuring that they are in an office uh, and and not doing a subjective I feel fine any more than we have to go in in a simulator uh, at least two or three times a year to essentially make sure we're competent to fly an aircraft. And and I've said to, to managers and otherwise, why are, why are we allowing what we're allowing with telemedicine? I can't just phone in and say, I'm a great pilot. Uh, if I lose an engine on takeoff, I can assure you 100% it's going to go super well. I have, to get in, I have to get in a simulator and prove that with my hands and my feet. And when it comes to uh, to health and safety, to, to the health aspect, I don't, I don't think we should be uh, attesting to how we feel either. I think we should be uh, be ensuring that we've got that backstop for uh, for safety. Thank you very much.